So when I was at theological college, we uh, used to have these study weekends in a very old convent that had been converted into a Christian resource center. And every day we would have student-led morning and evening prayer. And the person leading the prayer, uh, we all took it in turns, would invariably start with something like this. They'd say, you may be tired, or perhaps you're feeling worried and anxious about something. Or, or maybe things haven't gone so well this week, and they'd continue in that vein. And very often I'd be thinking, well, actually, I feel okay. I don't feel too bad, or I didn't. And uh, I know it came from a place of wanting to be caring, but when we meet together, we have to acknowledge that some people will be feeling really low, and some people will be feeling great and there'll be everything in between. Because life has ups and downs for all of us. We go through times of pain and grief, and we go through times of elation and celebration. As Christians, we acknowledge the pain and the joy of life. The Bible uh, acknowledges, the, the passage that we're looking at today acknowledges the pain and the joy of life. At the beginning of... Christian marriage, we acknowledge these ups and downs. And the couple who are promising to get married, uh, they, or, or the, rather the couple that are getting married, they promise to persevere with the relationship in spite of these ups and downs. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. Well, as I said, at the 10.30, we've got a baptism service and, and that involves the whole church, those of us who are here at this service and uh, everyone in our church. And baptism signifies the beginning of a relationship, not the very beginning. Our relationship with God begins before we get baptized, uh, just as my relationship with Tissa began before our wedding day. But a wedding and a baptism both signify something new, uh, a new relationship, and baptism signifies the beginning of a relationship that is even more important than marriage. Marriage is the beginning of a lifespan spent with one person. Baptism is the beginning of eternity spent with God. The final section of James is very Appropriate. It's an appropriate way to prepare a newly baptized person or their parents uh, for the ups and downs of life. And it's also an encouragement to all of us to persevere with the most important relationship of all, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So James gives us uh, three categories of people. They're all going through very different things. The person who is in trouble, the person who is happy, the person who is sick. These are just uh, three examples of life's manifold experiences, and uh, James tells us how to respond to these experiences, indeed how to respond to all of life's experiences. Uh, spoiler alert, there is a theme. Uh, in every verse, the word prayer or pray is mentioned. So James is saying, whatever is going on in your life, Keep that line of communication with God open. Firstly, he said, is anyone in trouble? Have you ever been in trouble? 
I don't mean standing in the principal's office, although that might be a good time to pray. I mean financially, or there might be something going on at work, or relationally, or some kind of uh, moral failing that has become a real problem for you and the people around you. Uh, There are endless ways that we can get into trouble. Uh, Some are our doing, and others are not. James says, in all those situations, pray. Before you do anything else, pray. James isn't saying pray and do nothing else. We have to take action, but we shouldn't do that until we've taken the situation to the Lord in prayer. Remember that you are a child of the living God. You don't have to face life's challenges on your own. And what does a child do when uh, they're in trouble? They run into the arms of their mother or their father or their carer. And when we're in trouble, we should run into the arms of our Heavenly Father in prayer. Next, James says, is anyone happy? When you're happy, recognize the source of your happiness. Give thanks to the Lord with a grateful heart. James tells us to sing a song of praise. Have you ever heard a child singing for no other reason than that they're happy? It's the most beautiful sound. But you don't have to be happy to sing a song of praise. You can be at your lowest ebb. And that act of uh, singing, uh, lifting your voice in praise, will lift your spirit as you connect to God uh, through worship. So we sing a song of praise when we're happy, but at any time. Then James says, is anyone among you sick? Uh, Being unwell can really take the edge off everything, can't it? Uh, But when we're sick, there are two things we need to avoid. The first is self-pity. That's where, in our minds, the world starts to revolve around us. We want everyone to know just how much we're struggling. If you've ever witnessed anyone going through man flu, uh, you know exactly what this looks like, self-pity. The second thing to avoid is almost the complete opposite, self-reliance. That's when we say, I'll be okay. I don't want to bother anyone. There are lots of people worse off than me. I'll get through it. Both of those things, self-pity and self-reliance, will stop you doing the very thing that James says we ought to do when we're sick. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. If you're full of self-pity, you'll expect everyone to automatically know that you're sick and you expect them to come to you. If you're self-reliant, you won't want to bother anyone. You won't want anyone to know what you're going through. But James is saying that the sick person has a responsibility. Let them call the elders. Now, I'd like to think that if you're sick, if you're unwell, we'd... uh, we'd um, pick up on that, we'd support you, we'd care for you, we'd pray for you. But that's not necessarily the case, so let us know. Let us know what's going on in your lives. So I'm sick, can you pray for me? Can you anoint me with oil? Can you get the church to pray for me? If you approach me with that request, the answer will always be yes, always. 
Verse 15 talks about the prayer offered in faith. And I don't think James is talking about some superhuman level of faith. If we ask for prayer, then we're demonstrating our faith in in the fact that God can heal. If we pray for someone who is sick, we're demonstrating our faith that God heals today. Both those things demonstrate faith. And it's interesting, James talks about healing and confession in the same breath. So what is the link between confessing our sins and being healed? Well, your illness is not, it is not a punishment from God for your sins. But God is concerned for your overall health and especially your spiritual health. And it could be, not necessarily, but it could be that God wants to deal with uh, sin before he deals with the physical ailment. And I think we can understand that. If a child is behaving really badly, let's say they've been super rude, and then they've stormed off to their room, slammed the door, and locked themselves away, well, that creates a a problem in the relationship between you and the child, doesn't it? It creates a, a, a difficulty. But what if that child emerges from their room an hour later, acting as if nothing has happened, and says, can you take me swimming? Well, you know that it would be good for them to go swimming, don't you? But there's something you have to deal with first. You might say, well, let's talk about that thing that happened earlier. The child might acknowledge uh, that they were in the wrong to be rude. They might apologize, and then you might take them swimming. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, there's something God wants to deal with before he grants our prayer for healing. We're normally much quicker to notice our physical ailments than we are to notice our sin. And God can use the physical, as a, uh, C.S. Lewis put it, as a, as a loud hailer to alert us of the sin in our life. God says, okay, let's deal with the spiritual problem, the sin, and then we'll deal with the physical problem. Not always, but sometimes. And we see Jesus doing this, don't we? You remember when the paralyzed man was lowered through the roof by his friends right in front of Jesus in the house that he was teaching. And the first thing Jesus said to the man was, son, your sins are forgiven. And then he healed him, told him to take up his mat and go home, which the man did. God is interested in our healing as integral human beings, mentally physically, emotionally, spiritually. God is always working to bring healing and wholeness to our lives. It's true that many Christians don't receive the healing that's been prayed for. A lot do, more than we could put down to a coincidence, but some don't. But everyone who puts their faith in Jesus will ultimately be healed completely when they meet Jesus face to face. So for the believer, it's not a question of, will God heal me? It's a question of, when will God heal me? We will be healed in this life or the next. So James is saying, whatever your circumstances, keep seeking the Lord through prayer and praise. Prayer is powerful. Prayer changes things. 
God has built prayer into his method of governing the universe. I think if we fully understood that, we'd all pray a lot more, all of us. Later on, uh, Ben and Rachel uh, and the godparents will be making promises on behalf of their baby daughter, Cecilia. They'll be promising to pray for Cecilia, to draw her by example into the community of faith, to walk with her in the way of Christ, and to help her take her place in the life and worship of Christ church. In other words, they're going to promise to do everything they can to help Cecilia have the best possible relationship with Jesus. And we all know that relationships are based on communication. And communication with God is prayer. And so James's words are really fitting today uh, when we got baptisms. But it's not just uh, Ben and Cecilia, they're the two people getting baptized later, father and daughter. It's not just uh, their sponsors who will make promises today. We, the church, the people of God, are promising to uphold Ben and Cecilia and Rachel, promising to uphold this family in their new life in Christ. You don't have to be at that service to make the promise. The people who are at the 1030 service will be making that promise on all our behalves. Verse 19 to 20 says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We all have times when we waver and struggle and wander. Uh, We can wander theologically. That's when we say, oh, I'm not sure if Jesus died for my sin. Actually, I don't think we're all sinful. Uh, I, I can't believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. We can wander from the truth of Christianity. I'm not talking about legitimate theological debate. I'm talking about wandering away from the central tenets of our faith. We can wander morally. That's when we say, I know that the Bible says that we shouldn't do X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to do them anyway. Because I don't want to be restrained by that. I don't want God telling me what to do. I I, I want to do my own thing. We can wander morally. We can wander relationally. That's when we don't respond to anyone's call. We stop going to our hub or our home group. We stop coming to church. And sometimes people just decide they don't want to be in community anymore. They just leave. And as a pastor, that is absolutely heartbreaking but it happens of course this doesn't include people who move from one church to another church because they're still part of the body of christ just another part of the body it's not good to pinball from church to church but there are legitimate reasons why we might change from one church to another but james is saying that you know if if a person wanders in any way theologically or morally, or relationally. James says we should reach out to those people who have wandered. We don't hound them. We don't pester them to the point where they think they're escaping from some kind of crazy cult. 
But we reach out to them. We love them. And in so doing, we can, according to James, save them from death. And that's pretty serious. That's very challenging that it says that here. To be honest, verse 20 uh, opens a, a can of worms that we haven't got deal, time to deal with uh, fully today uh, because it invites the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? By salvation, I mean being moved from darkness to light, from death to life, being forgiven and given eternal life through Jesus Christ, through what he did on the cross and his resurre- resurrection. Can a Christian lose that? Can a Christian lose eternal life, uh, uh, salvation? Well, I'm going to answer that question as concisely as I can. No. No. A genuine believer cannot lose their salvation. From what James is saying here, it seems that there are roads that would, in theory, lead to death for a Christian. But a genuine believer who has wandered from the truth would never stay on that road. Usually God will send someone else to to bring them back, to get them back on track. That's what James is talking about here. But God will always bring that person back on track. If a person wanders off and remains on the path to destruction, that would only go to show that their faith was never genuine faith in the first place. Genuine believers cannot lose their salvation. I think that's the takeaway uh, from all I've said there. It's, uh, it's a lot to digest. It's a bit of a digression. It's an important one, and it does come up in this passage. We'll talk about it more, more fully another time, but a, a, a genuine believer cannot lose their salvation. And James ends his letter quite abruptly here. There are no final greetings, little messages, news of friends, the kinds of things that uh, Paul would often end his letter with, uh, it just stops here. James cuts it off. And in so doing, he shows, I think, what's really important to him as a pastor. He shows his pastor's heart. He's, he's pastoring the church in Jerusalem. And he says, if people wander off, reach out, bring them back, keep them in the fold. We need to be a pastoral church. And as a church, we're promising today to uphold this new family, Ben and Cecilia, who are getting baptized, which is really just promising to do what we would do for any member of this church, for any member of the body of Christ, to love them, to look out for them, to care for them, and to play a role in their discipleship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, James's letter, such a a powerful letter, such a challenging letter to us as Christians and the way that we live. We thank you, Lord, that prayer is powerful. We marvel that you have built it into your method of governing the universe. And we pray that we will always, no matter what is going on in our life, that we will always keep that line of communication open with you. We pray that we become an ever more prayerful church. And we pray that we will, in a sense, pastor one another, 
look out for one another, care for one another, recognize that you know all of us can go through some really tough times when we feel like we're just holding on by a thread. And we pray that we can you know, recognize that and rally around those people and love them and help them to remain on the path that you have set before them. And we pray that when we're in that position, there'll be those around us who will do that for us and you work through them to see that your will is, is carried out in our lives. Father, we love you and we thank you for the privilege of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.